The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Man, we're glad you're with us. We're continuing our right through the Bible uh, study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's what we're doing. And so we're glad you're here with us. Um, Why don't you grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. There in chapter 5 is where we left off. Isaiah chapter 5. We started the chapter, uh, we kind of ran out of time last week. So, um, so uh, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off. We, we left off with a little um, poem. It was a little song uh, called The Song of the Vineyard. And if you recall, it was basically Isaiah writing about this beautiful vineyard that had every potential of being fruitful and productive, but instead it brought forth wild grapes. And the idea of wild grapes, that's not a good thing. You know, um, it's amazing, you know, when, you, when you're talking about wild blackberries or, or things like that. Man, that's great. It's one of my favorites. But I, apparently wild grapes uh, in, in that region of the world are sour, horrible grapes, and they're worthless. You can't do anything with them, really. And so this beautiful vineyard was taken over with wild grapes. And so, um, you know, basically, um, the Lord says to Israel through this little poem, I'm going to leave this tilled land that's been set up with towers of water and ready for uh, beautiful vineyards. I'm just going to leave it alone. It's going to go to thorns and thistles. And, and the Lord is lifting up his blessing, lifting up his hand from Israel. And this is really Isaiah's calling to call the people of Israel out uh, uh, into, into that, um, you know, repentance. But one of the things that you're going to get the sense of even tonight um, is, is the Lord seems to almost give up on these people. Does the Lord give up on people? That's an interesting question. Uh, you might have a knee-jerk reaction to say, nah, the Lord never gives up. He's just always faithful and never gives up on people. We'll, we'll talk about that tonight. But it says here in this little song that the vineyard's done and there's, it's going away. <laughs> so that's a little hint of coming attractions. Um, and then after that nice little ditty, the little poem, the little song from Isaiah that kind of says you're toast, um, then he's going to pass out six woes, big time woes. Now, this whole thing of woe unto them, um, this is Isaiah basically pointing his prophetic finger at each of these people of Israel, of Judah, of Jerusalem, and saying, woe unto you. Um, woe is almost like an astonishing wow. I can't even believe this is all going to happen. But it's bad. It's all bad. The bad woes here of Isaiah. Um, but you'll notice the woes that Isaiah passes out to the Jews there, you know, several thousand years ago. You'll see that some of those woes are the same woes that you could pass out today to the United States or to the world culture today. Basically, we've set a culture of godlessness around the world. And um, we're into the same things they were. It's amazing to me how people haven't changed all that much. Um, I'm also interested to hear people talk about the Bible being irrelevant. And the and, uh, Bible doesn't have anything. It's just old stories of ancient people that have nothing to do with us. Man, I don't know what Bible they're reading. First Babylonians, maybe. But they're not reading the Bible of the, the, the Lord. And, uh, and right here, I see these people exactly like we are. And we can learn from them. Hopefully, we learn. You know, if there's one thing we've learned from history is we've learned nothing from history. But here we have a chance tonight to look at these people and um, get into this uh, woe uh, series, the six woes. 
you you got to tell this joke uh, with the woes that are in front of us. It's that story of of uh, the pastor who walked by the livery stable there in cowboy days, and and uh, he saw that it said Christian horse for sale, and so he went into the livery stable and thought this is interesting. I've never heard of a Christian horse, and he said, "What's the deal with this Christian horse?" And the guy said, "Well, it's a great horse. Um, the only thing is, um, if you want to go, you don't say giddy up. You, you say praise the Lord." And uh, when you want to stop, you don't say, whoa, you say, amen. And the guy, the pastor was kind of thought, that's cool. Is this guy take it for a test drive? He said, sure. So he gets on the horse, rides out of town, and, and uh, he says, giddy up. And then the horse just does nothing. And uh, he says, giddy up. And, and then he remembered, oh, yeah, the, 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 the praise the Lord thing. So he says, praise the Lord. And the horse just, just took off and just riding. And he was having a great time. And and uh, suddenly there was a rattlesnake that popped out of a rock and spooked the horse. And the horse just took off, and it was just running, running, running through the desert there. And the, the pastor was like, whoa, whoa. And he's pulling on the reins, trying to get the horse stuff. But he just, the more he yelled, whoa, the faster the horse ran. And then it just, at the very last minute, as they were heading toward this cliff, the horse was headed for a cliff. The pastor finally realized, uh, oh yeah, it's not, a, what is the word? What's the word? Oh, he says, amen. The horse screeches to a stop. Right just inches he stops before he gets over the cliff. And the pastor lifted his hands to the Lord of heaven and said, oh, praise the Lord. But uh, I hope you're laughing at home because right here I'm sitting with crickets chirping. Uh, but uh, <laughs> tumbleweeds blowing across the sanctuary right now. But I'm sure you guys are just uh, laughing it up about that, that joke. But the, the, the woes here of Isaiah, they're not woes of a horse. They're woes of horrible things that are upon the people of Israel. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, uh, this evening. So the first woe is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Let's read. It says, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In mine ears saith the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of a vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of a homer shall yield an epath. What's that? Well, if you're jotting down notes, the first woe is dealing with what we're going to call this evening corrupt capitalism. Corrupt capitalism. Um, interesting thing about this, it's, it's these people who are joining house to house, laying field to field. The idea is they're accumulating wealth. You know, um, there, there's this kind of covetous, ruthless sort of mentality of wanting more stuff and getting bigger houses, more houses, more farm land, and just, you know, gobbling it all up. But the Lord basically is indicting them, saying, in mine ear, saith Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate. He's going to say, you're going to want to have more, but it's just going to be emptiness. And all this stuff about the bath and the epath, um, what, what this is all about, the bath, you say bot in Hebrew, which is a unit of measure. It's about six gallons. Uh, volume-wise. So when it says um, the, the yay, uh, 10 acres of a vineyard will yield one bath, that's just six gallons of grapes. That's pathetic. Uh, that's worthless. It's a waste of time. And the, this uh, ipa is about one-twelfth uh, of the amount of seed that would be sown. So 
picture sowing seed in a garden and only one twelfth of those seed bringing forth good fruit. That's not a great ratio. And the Lord's saying, you're going to be striving, you're going to be toiling, you're going to be struggling, but you're going to come up empty, emptiness. And he's talking about just, you know, people trying to do more, work harder, corrupt capitalism. Now, uh, interesting that I bring that up because a lot of people are, you know, talking about capitalism, especially with kind of the current world situation with Bernie Sanders, you know, really talking about socialism. And you, you, you kind of wonder, is socialism okay? Is communism okay? Marxism? I remember in college, I, I had a college professor that um, started out his class saying, I am a Marxist. Uh, and I'm into socialism. Basically, communism was his thing, really. But, but, um, but I remember being so stunned because that was in the late '80s uh, when we were just coming kind of into the the end of the Cold War, and communism was kind of a dirty word. But college professors have been pushing socialism and, and what have you for quite some time now. And so a lot of our younger people are into socialism. Uh, uh, some of us older people are like, no, capitalism has served us well. Um, and it has. But here's the thing. Uh, is is, is, is uh, capitalism better than socialism? Here, the thing is, all of those, now listen to my whole thing. Don't turn it off. Don't, because this is important. Socialism's wonderful. Communism is wonderful, except for one thing. Oh, capitalism, wonderful. In fact, I would argue that you could make the case that all of the various world, uh, you know, governmental systems and what have you, wonderful, minus one thing, people. Whenever you add people to anything, you're adding wackoness and sinfulness. You see, socialism would be wonderful if the government stayed nice and giving and not self-centered and not, not um, you know, corrupt. Uh, that's what's, that's the problem with socialism is you've got government controlling everything and they end up being greedy and taking money. That's why Venezuela is in the situation it is right now. That's why much of socialism, as you look around the world, it, it's not working. Um, and it, it, it never has worked because of corruption. But the same thing's true of communism. The same thing is true of, you know, dictatorship. A dictatorship could be wonderful if it didn't involve people. Um, if it was a good dictator, by the way, you could maybe make an argument that someday we will be under a glorious dictatorship. Um, and that's when Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns over the earth, one single ruler. The reason it's going to work and the reason it's not going to be evil is because he does nothing evil. He does everything good and righteous. Um, if you have Kim Jong-un over there in North Korea, he's an evil dude, and he could care less about his people. Thus, a dictatorship it's horrifying, and people are dying because of evil corruption. So you could even make that argument, by the way, of capitalism. And um, you know what's interesting about our country, though? And let me just defend our, our, our capitalism and our, our, the way we've built this country as um, people. Is, it was built, uh, you know, um, way back, you know, some people think the Constitution was our first document, but you know, you might even go all the way back to the Mayflower Compact, you know, the, the, the writings of these Puritans. It was right out of the Bible, what they wanted to achieve and do here um, in, the, in the United States when they moved to this new world. Um, and we could talk about all the other documents and what have you, but the goal was to have goodness and sort of a Christian nation 
was the idea. And I know there's people that argue with that and say, oh, no, they weren't Christians, they were deists and whatever. But I disagree with that. And I've studied a lot of history about this. I've read a lot of the writings of our founders. And man, you just can't get around it. These guys love Jesus. They believe that our country should, would be whacked if we ever lost our faith in Christ. It was de Tocqueville who came back, uh, came here in the 17, uh, when when was de Tocqueville? I forget. But he came and he observed. He said, what made America great? This French philosopher. He's like uh, looking at our nation. He says he looked to the farms and the fields. He said he didn't find the greatness there. He looked to the schools and the education system, but he didn't see the greatness of America there. And he looked all over what, what made this capitalism, this democracy, what made it all work and great. He says, America will remain great because he said, I found the secret to its greatness in its churches and from the pulpits where the pastors were preaching of truth and morality and righteousness and goodness. And, and de Tocqueville made a hauntingly accurate um, prophecy there, whether he was trying to make a prophecy or not. He said, America will remain great as long as America remains good. But as soon as America loses its goodness, it will lose its greatness. Boy, we're seeing that happen right before our eyes. We're seeing America's greatness, I think, being squandered with immorality and unjustness. And and we're seeing all kinds of corruption, I believe, in Washington and other places. And that's why even democracy, I, I wonder if that's maybe why some of our young people are saying, um, forget capitalism. Even though us older people are saying, hey, it's worked really well. Uh, they're saying, forget about it. There's injustice and imbalance. And I think that's coming from this idea uh, that we are, are not, not good. There's greediness. There's the same kind of corrupt capitalism where people are getting more for themselves and they don't want to help others. And it becomes a very self-centered kind of thing. So no matter what form of government you're talking about, it's all going to fail whenever you involve humanity, people. Um, I believe that the United States has a great form of government because of our, we're, we're still riding on some of the momentum of the faith of our fathers, our founders, and some of the goodness that came from Americans before us. Um, but the further away we get from God and from Christ, and the further we push Christ out of our schools, and the more we uh, become atheists and irreligious, um, the more our form of government will fail. That, that's a prediction I'll make. The further away we get from, from God and morality from the Bible, the more we are going to fail in democracy and in capitalism and all that stuff. Um, the Jews kind of reached that point where God says your capitalism of uh, buying and selling lands and wanting more for yourselves, you've become greedy. And the Lord says, you, it'll be emptiness and, and you won't find goodness there. So covetousness, ruthlessness, corrupt capitalism, that's number one. So he says, woe, verses 8 through 10. The second woe is in verse 11. It says, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning. Right there, I like that. Uh, No early risers. Check. (laughs) You guys are saying, man, I'm not getting up early. I I like that. Have you noticed uh, yourself sleeping in a little bit since since we've been under quarantine and lockdown, uh, where some of you maybe aren't going to work like you did before? Um, people are sleeping in, I'm afraid. But that's sadly not what he's saying here. Let's finish. It says, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink and continue until night. Party down from morning till night. Uh, That continue until night till the wine inflame them. 
and the harp and the viol and the tabret and the pipe and the wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are uh, famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, hell hath enlarged itself and opened her mouth without measure. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp. And he that rejoiceth shall descend into it, into hell. And the mean man shall be brought down and the mighty man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and God that is holy shall be sanctified in the righteousness. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. What's going on here? The woe number two is uh, the woe to hedonism. Hedonism. What is hedonism? Remember, it's just a, you know, pursuing of pleasure beyond everything else. Um, hedonistic cultures and societies have come and gone throughout the ages. And largely as Americans, we've lived for pleasure and for, we've pursued pleasure. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a difference between the pursuit of happiness versus the pursuit of just uh, self-centered pleasure. Hedonism. I think we see it maybe displayed even the last few weeks when we saw the coronavirus, you know, spreading rampantly. Um, and, you know, we, we, during spring break, we gave everybody the warning, go home, stay home, save lives, that whole thing. Meanwhile, our college-age party animals were down in Panama Beach, Florida, you know, partying and uh, twerking and drinking and uh, playing around down there. Um, just this week, if you follow the news, uh, a lot of those kids, as it turns out, got the coronavirus. And, and what they're also finding is the coronavirus is not as uh, brutal only to the elderly. They're finding out just today, I saw a doctor come out saying, well, we're finding that there are young people that are dying too um, of the coronavirus, the COVID-19. And, um, you know, really hedonism is kind of that picture. If you could picture, you know, at all costs living for pleasure as you you know, maybe you saw some of the interviews of those college students saying, we're young and our immunity system is stronger than old people. So we can be down here busting a move on the beach and having a great time. But, you know, they, they didn't realize that not only they could get sick and die, but also that grandma would, would be catching the, the, the virus from them or older people. And that's how it spreads rampantly. And so there was a very self-centered kind of thing. And now those kids are getting kind of a, um, you know, there, there's even a name that they're calling it now, COVIDians. <laughs> People that have uh, the, uh, the lack of, you know, social distancing skills and aren't taking it seriously. They're calling COVIDians. Uh, I'm not promoting that. I'm just, I just kind of caught me as sort of funny. But be that as it may, um, this idea of, you know, hedonism, where we see, you know, just a rampant pursuit of pleasure. The Lord says, basically, those people that are doing that, they're, they're going to go into captivity. They're going to end up in captivity, even thrown into the very pit of hell, verse 14 says. Um, and even the great man, the average man, uh, the low man, it doesn't matter who you are, pursuit of that kind of pleasure will throw you into hell and you'll be humbled. The Lord will be exalted but the, the hedonistic will be humbled. 
Matt, I hope we're careful on this one because we have been a culture that lives for pleasure and for happiness and comfort. I think this, you know, um, quarantining and locking down has been hard for some people because you could go wherever you wanted to go. You could eat whatever you wanted to eat. You could eat at restaurants, you know, seven days a week. And, you know, we've been living in this prosperity and pleasure and suddenly you can't go eat at restaurants. And who would have thought, you know, we'd be locked down in our homes. And they're even talking about tracking people with their cell phones and and all this stuff. It, it almost seems like a, you know, George Orwell kind of situation, you know, where people are being watched and all that. And you might say, man, I feel so confined and so stuck. Maybe this is the Lord just showing us to be careful and not to be so into the pursuit of pleasure, hedonistic to a, to a fail. Um, and the Lord says, I will be exalted. Um, you guys are going down if you're going to live for pleasure. So woe unto the Jews there and woe unto us when people pursue, number one, corrupt capitalism, woe unto you. Number two, hedonism, the pursuing of just uh, pleasure at all cost. Um, and then we come to the third woe. The third woe is uh, verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, a cart rope. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Now, this might sound good at first, but it's not. It's a really, really bad thing. What are these people doing? They're taking up sinful iniquity, yucky sinfulness, and they're drawing it in with ropes. And they're saying, come over here, God, look at what we're doing and see what you think about it. They're, they're doing sinful stuff and they're doing it in the face of God. And we're going to call this liberalism. Um, number one is hedonism, or pardon me, corrupt capitalism. Number two is hedonism. Number three is liberalism. Um, loose with, looseness with sin. Um, doing things that are, seem to be free and, and valid and acceptable when in the eyes of God they are not. And this liberalism tends to become a thing where men flaunt it in the face of God. And that's one of the pitfalls of this loose liberalism. Looseness with sin. And they say, come on, Lord, hurry up and, and come and see. Look, look, you may know what we're doing. And I believe that's what we see when people march down the streets of Portland with the rainbows and the, and the um, you know, gay and uh, lesbian, you know, and, uh, you know, transgender and all the, the various groups that are very much um, flaunting what they say. Look what we're doing. And who cares what God thinks? Um, that's exactly what this is talking about. Um, just people doing sinful stuff that the Bible calls sin and um, then, then flashing in the face of God saying, yeah, whatever. The problem is, and this is the tragic part, God calls that stuff sin not because he doesn't like gay people. God calls that sin because um, certain lifestyles that the Bible outlines will be harmful to you. They hurt you. You're the one. If you're living that gay lifestyle or lesbian lifestyle or, you know, doing that stuff that's, that's flaunting in front of God, it's you that will be hurting. And that's why God, as a loving God, has said, man, I, I forbid things that are called sin because I want you to flourish and do well. But there are certain people who say, yeah, whatever, God. It's like the three-year-old and the mother trying to warn, don't touch that red-hot stove, it'll hurt you. But the three-year-old is enamored with the red-hot stove and reaches and sort of in a trance, reaching, wanting to touch that hot stove. And the, the, the good mother 
will grab that child and pull away so that she not be burned by the red hot stove. God has tried with, uh, you know, to pull people away from things that will hurt them, but we, mesmerized by our own you know, lust for sinfulness, we keep moving toward that. And that's what the world's doing today. That's what the Jews were doing then. And, the, and there's a point where they're going to they're gonna flaunt it so much. That's where God, like in Romans chapter 1, talking about that very topic, he says, I will give you over to your lusts and your sins. I'll, I'll let you do what you want. And then you're going to see why I called it sin and why it was bad. It was not bad because I forbade it. I forbade it because it was bad and it was going to mess you up. And that's this corrupt, loose liberalism that we see happening today. So basically, these people are mockingly saying, hurry up, God, let's see what you can do about this. And some people make the mistake, by the way, of thinking that, you know, um, because uh, God has not judged them right this second, they uh, misunderstand God's patience with um, perhaps, you know, sort of just not caring, an apathy about the sin. But mark, mark this well, the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. And these people here are going to learn that. These woes that Isaiah is saying, these people are not going to listen, and they're going to learn the hard way. And it's heartbreaking. You want to see people do well, and if you love people, you'll tell them the truth. Some people would say, Brett, you're a homophobe to say that stuff. And people would get all upset. But I'm telling you what the Bible teaches. You don't have a problem with me. You've got a problem with the Bible. So tell people, if you don't like this, tell people you don't like what the Bible says. But the sad thing is, people that care, they're going to tell you things that matter. People that could not care less about your future will say, yeah, man, gay pride, it's awesome. But the Bible says, man, the way of the sinner is hard And the Lord loves us so much that he wants to keep us from sin. So it's actually the Lord's love, but it's being misinterpreted as whatever people want to call it. It's funny how people call people names now. It's, that's, that's the end of all arguments. You know, you call someone, you know, uh, this or that. It's like, I just trumped you in in my uh, argument by calling you a name, homophobe or whatever. Um, No, that's not really a a legitimate way to talk about the topic. Um, But all that said, um, here's what the Bible says, woe unto those people. It's not a good thing that say we're going to flaunt our sin in the face of God. So you got, number one, corrupt, you know, uh, capitalism. Number two, hedonism. Number three, liberalism. Um, and then number four, we, we have kind of the next one, relativism. Or if you want, depending on the way you were taught, existentialism. You can call it either one. But let's, let's look at it right here. Um, it's in verse 20. It says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Is there a switching of the good and the evil today? See, some people would say that what I just said was evil. Um, uh, You know, it's amazing how um, that's been turned around. Here I'm a pastor teaching what the Bible says. And a lot of our culture today would say, well, he's just an evil hater. Um, But that's exactly what the Bible said would happen. In fact, it's not just here, but in the last days, the Bible says that people will call uh, good evil and evil good. Um, And so, you know, the people that get celebrated today are oftentimes the people that are doing the grossest stuff. 
Um, it's amazing this dichotomy uh, that we're seeing. You know, one, one minute Weinstein is getting put in prison for all the evil that he's done, which is totally evil. Um, but at the same time, we're celebrating these lusty, sexually uh, perverse movies that he put out. It's like we've got this double, triple, quadruple standard to approve things that are horrifyingly evil that he was the creator of. And then when he acted out on ways that he actually, movies that we all celebrate that have the same exact sexual perversion, then we throw him in prison, which we should have, and he deserves to be there. But it's such a double standard. People, you know, it's like this. My sin on you looks very evil, but my sin on me, it's not so bad. I'm a pretty good person. And I, I enjoyed that, you know, movie. And because I enjoyed it, it must be a good thing. Um, people have this weird relativism. If it's evil for you, then good for you. But don't tell me what's evil or what's right or what's wrong. There are no absolutes. And that's, again, what college professors have been pushing for decades now. There are no absolutes. And I always like to ask them, are you absolutely sure? Because <laughs> they say it. What, what they're saying, it, it, you know, elementary logic tells us you cannot say that. Um, there are no absolutes because that's an absolute statement, which means there are absolutes kind of harebrained if you ask me. But um, amazingly, a lot of our young people over the last 20, 30 years have been sort of indoctrinated um, by these uh, so-called thinkers. And and by the way, that kind of brings us to the next group of people. Um, And that's the number, uh, what are we on? Number five, Uh, intellectualism. (laughs) That's the next one. So you got corrupt capitalism, hedonism, you got liberalism, relativism, and then number five, intellectualism. Um, In fact, we see that in verse 21. It says, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and um, prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Woe unto them that are prudent or smart, uh, smart thinking in their, own, uh, in their own sight. Woe unto them. Well, these are the people that think they're really smart, think they're smarter than everybody else. And by the way, that's one of the things. There's a lot of people that think they're smarter than everybody else. And you see this condescending sort of attitude. Um, you know, it's funny, the older I get, the more I almost just so appreciate the simple. People that are just simple. And, and, and what I've found is... There are people that have learned how to look really smart, but they're actually not. And then there's people that look kind of dumb, but they're actually really smart. Um, it's amazing to me how, um, you know, we see this all over the place. And I hope you, hope you younger people can see through this. Um, because you can go to a college or university and find your, you know, pipe-puffing, cardigan sweater-wearing professor as he pontificates and puffs his pipe, and you think, wow, what an intellect, what a brain, and he uses fancy words and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm actually learning to be more impressed, and I've read a lot of those guys. I've been through college and all that stuff, and I'm just not impressed They sound smart, but many of them, now don't get me wrong, there are smart people out there that are scholarly, and man, I love those, and there are some in colleges and universities, and you know, some of our, you know, there's smart people out there, but I'm sometimes impressed with the guy that knows how to fix your plumbing in your house, or the guy that knows how to lay tile, uh, and that guy who knows how to fix a leak in your house. Um, I'm more impressed with these construction workers who can 
build a bridge that withstands a, you know, an, an, an earthquake. Um, and the guys who know how to design those things. And I mean, you know, that to me is in some ways real intellect where, um, you know, I, I'm kind of impressed really. Uh, but I've found that there's, there's guys, you know, that sound like Hicks, you know, and they talk sort of like, tell you what, Pertinere, they might just be smarter than you. Uh, be careful uh, with this sort of uh, appearance of intellectualism, because I believe we've become so open-minded that our brains have fallen out. Um, and our intellects, man, they seem so smart, but they're the ones saying stuff like this, that, you know, um, you know, it's all relative. There's nothing that's for sure. And, you know, um, how do you know it's good? Or how do you know it's bad or evil? And they're raising all these questions. And the Bible says they, they are um, professing themselves to be wise. They've become fools. That's what we're seeing today. And so you young people, be careful. There's a lot of very deceptive, smart-looking people that you're maybe learning under in colleges and universities. And, and there's some smart ones, but man, it's a little tricky figuring out which ones are right and which ones are wrong. I'm going to go out on a limb because I know a lot of you uh, believe in evolution, perhaps, that are listening to this teaching or online live with us right now. But, you know, evolution, it's just such a fantasy. And we've bought into this, this whole thing. Now, Real science is, is even starting to jump ship, and they have for quite a while. They're trying to figure out another theory that might not be so stupid. Um, like, it's so amazing to me that you, you really believe, people believe, that um, there was this, you know, some, some, you know, prebiotic, uh, pre-mortal type soup that was stricken with some kind of a charge of electricity, and suddenly life went into that little single cell. And even if you believe that, that little cell... You know, um, that cell, for that to exist, there had to be a perfect sequence of things to make that cell alive and work. And, and then to have those cells replicate themselves and duplicate each one. It'd be like if you had a mousetrap. If you took a mousetrap, pretty basic little thing, if you ever looked at a, an old school mousetrap, you know, um, if you took any one thing off of that mousetrap, it wouldn't work anymore. If you took the little, you know, spring off of it, or if you took the little arm that holds the, the lever down that's going to crush the unsuspecting mice, um, uh, if you took any one part of that out of there, you would suddenly have a dysfunctional mousetrap. And what evolution wants you to believe is that there's been a replication of everything that's needed to happen just by an accidental set of circumstances, and this is why, by the way, they have to say billions and billions of years because they believe that the, the chances, they know that the chances, the odds of that happening are so impossible that they need billions of years. It'd be like if you had a giant warehouse full of airplane parts and then you shook that up and you just kept shaking. How long would you have to shake that big hanger with all those airplane parts? How long would you have to shake it to have it suddenly come together and form a 747 that's in working condition. You see, that's why they take billions of years, because that's not going to happen in a billion years. It's a fantasy, the whole evolutionary theory. Now, we see microevolution, where adaptation within the same species, and they use that as sort of evidence. We, that's clear that we see that. But ma macroevolution, where, you know, interspecies, and eventually that fish grew an arm and crawled out on the beach and grew an eyeball and all that. That's just total 
I, I'm sorry, you, you, you really have to think through, is it really even possible? I think it's easier to believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, that's, that's a much more um, intellectually honest uh, sort of deal. You've got intelligent design. The reason we believe in design is because when you look at the, the human cell and you see your polynucleotide strands of DNA in your body, you see a sequence that has to be so perfect. It's uh, information that's perfectly coded. And if that code gets out of whack just a little bit, then you're, you're going to be totally messed up. And, and the fact that, that that intelligent code and sequence is so perfect um, that it's got more information, you know, than volumes of volumes of books um, that have to be sequentially totally accurate. To think that just accidentally happened, happened is a fantasy. So isn't it funny that our so-called intellectuals, that's, that's the basis of a lot of their worldview is evolution. Um, that's why it's such a battleground in uh, education. That's why people right now are probably, because you, people believe they're professors and so-called scientists, uh, and they're, some of you are dismissing what I'm saying right now. But if you really do an honest look at it and do the science study yourself, you will find that there's holes everywhere. Even Darwin said, you know, um, that it, it was far-fetched. Uh, read his book, chapter 6, tells us where Darwin even said, man, uh, I know it sounds totally far-fetched. And it's gonna, uh, uh, the truth is, I believe it's impossible. So, so the question is, are you part of this? Are you one of these people, part of this woe of thinking ourselves more smart and intellectual than we really are? I believe that God's saying this to the Jews, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Woe unto them that are prudent in their own sight. They think they know it all. Nope. Only God knows all things. That's why I love leaning on the Bible. I'm not leaning on my own intellect or what have you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in the true and living God. So you've got, number one, corrupt capitalism. Number two, hedonism. Number three, liberalism. Number four, uh, relativism or existentialism. Um, number five, intellectualism. And then the sixth ism uh, that God indicts the people of Israel is right here is alcoholism. Uh, oh no, Pastor Brett, you're not going to bash that one too. Nope, God is right here. Um, verse 22, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for, their, uh, for reward and take away righteousness of the righteous from him. Woe unto them that are into this strong drink. And um, uh, uh, some of your translations, the newer translations, sort of put it rightly. It's like you're a champion of mixed drinks. You're, you're like really into that whole thing uh, and making strong alcoholic beverages and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I see this and it makes me nervous enough for people, even in our church, that sort of celebrate making mixed drinks. There's Christian websites now where they talk about your favorite mixed drinks and how you can become really good, a champion of making mixed drinks. And here's the Lord saying, woe unto those people. Uh, I think we should be cautious about this. You know, when Jesus drank wine, it was, uh, you know, wine and it was good wine. Um, but it wasn't, you know, Jack Daniels and it wasn't making margaritas and all this stuff like this that we're so into now. Um, that was the way they drank. They had water and they had milk and they had wine. That's pretty much your three choices. They didn't have iced tea or Pepsi or Coke or uh, orange juice as much, uh, but they did have wine 
water, and those two things could last and be stored, and that's why they drank it. But it wasn't fermented to the level of craziness, and that's why the Lord tells us don't be drunk with wine. That is a sin in the Bible. When you're tipsy or drunk or even buzzed, that's all sin, the Bible says. And the people of Israel became so into their wine, they they started mixing their drinks and making it more powerful. And uh, the Lord says unto them, woe unto them. And then because of their drinking, they sort of lost good judgment. It sort of reminds me of uh, what you know, Solomon's mother said, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, to be given to strong drink, lest they, you know, forget the law and pervert good judgment. That's in Proverbs 31. Um, same thing here. These people are drinking, and, and then they, they start justifying the wicked. Their judgment is off. And they take away righteousness of the righteous. So they, they just do evil deeds when they start, you know, uh, swigging the brews and getting into their mixed drinks. Um, man, I, I know that I sound like a legalist or like a teetotaler, which I am. But I would say, uh, you know, think about not drinking. Just think about it. Why, why not just say, you know what, in this culture of alcoholism and people getting drunk all the time and, and it being a real problem in our culture, what if we just said, I, I'm free not to drink? It's not that the Bible says you can't drink alcohol. But what if you just said, I, I'm going to, instead of playing the game and playing with fire, what if you just said, I'm going to abstain from drinking altogether? Um, and what would be your reasoning? Stay out of trouble. Number two, care about people that are alcoholics that you know, people in your family, people that are your friends that come over to your house. If you're there drinking something other than alcohol, you're supporting them and you're standing with them and you're not going to stumble your brother. You know, there's so many good benefits of, of saying, you know what, we're just going to abstain. It's not a got to, it's a get to. For me, um, I don't feel like you have to not drink and that you're a sinner if you drink alcohol. I just find great liberty personally uh, in not having to do, deal with that at all. So just something for you to think about. Um, if you don't like what I said, then just be careful because if you are getting drunk or buzzed, that's just sin and it leads to all kinds of trouble. Um, so don't do that. Well, then the Lord continues after those six woes. The Lord speaks through Isaiah and continues this. It says in verse um, 24, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, as the flame consumes the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they cast away the law of the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts, and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. What did they do? They despised his word. I hope you don't do that as tonight we're talking about hedonism, liberalism. You know, we talked about homosexuality. Some of you despise what we're saying here, but this is the problem. That's the problem. And watch as the Lord continues talking to these people, their future is not that bright. Verse 25, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them, And the hills did tremble, and the carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Whew, that sounds pretty bad. Carcasses of people. That's what happened. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians, after Isaiah prophesied these things, both of those nations pillaged and plundered, raped and killed people in the streets of Jerusalem. And it was an ugly, horrifying time for the Jews. This all came to pass just like the Lord said. Now, 
And the end of verse 25 leaves a question with scholars that love the Bible. Um, what does it mean when it says, all this the Lord's anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still? Some of your newer translations say that his hand is raised up still, like he's going to smack you. Um, is it smacking raised up, or is it stretched out trying to save you? That's the thing. People don't, the scholars don't really know. Is it, is it a loving hand trying to pull them out of their own sinful depravity, or is it the hand ready to smack them again? Um, and the answer, we don't know. And if that troubles you, let me just give you some word of comfort. That hand of Jesus Christ that's going to come and rule and reign in this world, if you look closely, don't forget that same has, hand has little nail prints scars. He's the one who stretched out his hand on the cross for the sins of the world. And all we need to do is confess, repent, turn to Christ and be saved. And that's the hand I'm going to go to. So I think that whether it's a hand outstretched to smack or a hand outstretched to save, it is kind of up to you whether you're going to be saved by the hand of the Lord or you're going to be whacked by the hand of the Lord. It's up to you whether you're going to believe or not. Verse 26, it says, And he will lift up an ensign or a banner or a sign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them or whistle like this. Like, wow, whoa, Nelly. That's what they're whistling like. Um, they will hiss unto them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed sh- swiftly. That's the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They're going to come swis- swiftly, and the world's going to go, Whoo! bad news. Verse 27, none shall be weary nor stumble among them. The armies of the enemy, Babylonians, they're going to be tough. And the Assyrians, none shall slumber nor sleep, neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor their latchet of their shoes be broken, whose arrows are sharp and their bows bent, their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint and their wheels like whirlwind. And their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. They shall roar and lay hold of the prey and shall carry it away safe and none shall deliver it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. This is just a very scary um, end of secularism. People that are living the secularism, and that's the last ism that I'll talk about in chapter 5, is secularism. All of these things, corrupt capitalism, hedonism, liberalism, relativism, intellectualism, alcoholism, secularism is the summary. And the, the armies are going to come against those who are against the Lord. And uh, that's just the way it's going to be. First John chapter 2, verse 15 says this. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, and the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not the Father of the Father, but is of the world. So you have to ask yourself, we have to ask ourselves, are we into the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, Um, the Bible says the Lord is not in us. That was the condition of the Jews in Isaiah's prophecy. And that brings us to chapter 6. In verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. We looked at uh, verses uh, 1 through 5 on Sunday. And if you missed that, you'll want to uh, you know, download and 
you know, pick up that teaching and catch up because we spent a lot of time on these verses, but I, I didn't give you some of the details. So I'm going to fill in some details, and if you missed the meaning uh, on Sunday, you'll need to catch up. But in the year King Uzziah died, that would have been about 739 BC is when Uzziah the king died, if you're just getting your notes together on this. And um, Uzziah was that great king, and he had to die so that Isaiah could see the Lord. Uzziah was a great king, and his goodness and greatness seemed to almost eclipse um, what God was doing. And so when Uzziah died, then Isaiah saw this beautiful vision of the Lord high and lifted up. Now the word Lord there is not Jehovah. It does, notice the not, there's no capital letters, L-O-R-D. It's the different Lord there, which means um, it, it comes from the Hebrew Adonai, which is a, a cool sort of title of God, which means the sovereign one. Adonai means sovereign one. And so it could almost say, I saw the sovereign one, God, sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Some of you guys are thinking, what kind of locomotive was that? Or some of you ladies are thinking, what kind of wedding dress was that? The train. But it's neither one of those. Um, the word train in the, uh, the Hebrew is the word shul. And the word shul is a very specific word that we don't really even have a word in our English that um, has the same meaning because we don't have the same thing. Some translate the word shul to robe. His robe filled the temple. Um, but the word robe's not correct either. It's the hem of the robe that's in that particular uh, word, shul. It's the hem. So who cares about the hem? Well, see, that's just it. We don't really care about hems anymore. Um, but in Bible times, when you wore a, a robe, a priestly robe or a, a kingly robe, it would have a very specific hem. And the hem would sort of tell us about who you were. Um, it'd be a little bit like our, uh, you, know, uh, you know, soldiers or, you know, um, you know, the Marines or whatever. When you see them in their dress, dress uh, attire, they have the bars that kind of tell you about what they've done, what their exploits uh, included, and, and then they have rankings and stuff. In Bible times, the hem would tell us that, the hem of a garment. And uh, this is the idea when it says his hem, shul, train, filled the temple. Why? Because was, there was so much that he has done. It's almost too much to uh, speak of. And so that's the idea of the, his train filled the temple, shul, the hem of his robe. By the way, that's, that same word is the word that's used in the story of David. Remember when he cut the hem of Saul's garment as the king? He was cutting off. It'd be like you walking up to an admiral and you know, a four-star general or whatever, and tearing off his four stars. Um, that's what David did when he cut the hem of Saul's garment. So um, that's kind of the image here, this beautiful train with God sitting on the throne with this, this, this hem that speaks of his exploits filling the temple. And above it, the throne there, verse 2, stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. Um, with two, he covered his face, with two, he covered uh, his feet. But I do believe there might be some differences between cherubim and seraphim. Um, the cherubim seem to, in their appearances that we read about uh, in uh, Genesis, Exodus, Kings, and the book of Revelation, we read about cherubim. And they seem to have uh, four faces, like in the book of Revelation, and four wings. Seraphim seem to have six wings. Um, in the Bible, the main role of both cherubim, cherubim and seraphim is to sit at the throne and worship God. That's where we see these 
intelligent, sort of beautiful. They might sound ugly because they have faces and six wings and all this stuff, but I have a hunch that when we see these creatures, uh, when we're standing before the throne, we're going to be blown away at um, their beauty, perhaps. Um, you know, could Satan have been a um, sort of uh, a seraphim? Um, because it's interesting, because the, um, the Hebrew word seraph, uh, it means um, burning. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting because seraphim appearing here in Isaiah, the name means burning ones or flying serpents. <laughs> flying serpents? Are we talking about dragons with six wings flying around, burning, blowing fire out of their nose? I don't know. But that seems to be a little bit of the hint of what these creatures have. So the seraphim used two of their wings for flight um, as the cherubim, um, but they're among the highest order of angelic beings. That seems to be what these cherubim, seraphim creatures are. Um, and um, the reason that's important is when you get to heaven, you won't be a tourist. You'll go, oh, there's a seraphim. Well, how do you know it's not a cherubim? Six wings. Um, and somehow burning fire somehow. Uh, a cherubim has four wings and four faces. Um, so now you know. Well, there they're flying. There's the ser- uh, seraphims flying uh, um, over the throne. And then verse 3, it says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There's the word Lord in all caps. That's the word Jehovah. Is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now this seraphim cries out, holy, holy, holy. And can you imagine the door posts shaking in your house? Have you ever had that happen? Deb and I used to live in Tualatin, not far from, not too far, maybe a, maybe a mile away from a big quarry. And man, once in a while, they'd put some dynamite in that quarry and blow the quarry, and man, our whole house would just go. <coughs> and um, those of you that live in parts of Tualatin, you, you probably know what I'm talking about there. And you've got to hang on to the lamps and stuff, hopefully not having everything fall over and stuff, and your sheetrock cracking and stuff. But but, but that's kind of what I picture when this seraphim says, holy, holy, holy. It's like, wow, the doorposts are just going. Um, now you say, well, Brett, that's impressive. But you got to understand this seraphim is a, is a tiny creature compared to God. So here's God seated upon the throne and this little seraphim flying around that God could just swat with a fly swatter. But when he, the seraphim speaks, it's shaking the door. Like, this is just such an impressive image to me. And when we stand before God, I think we're going to be in such awe that we'll fall flat on our face. Every time in the Bible you see somebody stand before the throne of God, you see them fall flat on their face. Um, we are going to see this, and this is just a little hint. But this powerful, mighty seraphim is saying, holy, holy, holy. And we talked about that on Sunday. The word holy means whole, altogether perfect, lacking for nothing. Now, some of you might say, but why three times? Why be redundant? Why not just say, holy is the Lord of hosts? Um, Don't know for sure, but I believe it might just speak to the three-part being of God. Holy, holy, holy. God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, all three holy, three in one, the mystery of the Trinity. Great is the mystery of godliness. 
uh, Paul told young Timothy. And there in that verse talking about there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's all there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you know, who was and is and is to come. That's what they're going to cry out there in the book of Revelation. Well, um, verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As soon as he sees the King, Isaiah says, Oh, woe is me. Now, have you ever heard a Jew say, uh, say this remark, Hoy vey. <laughs> Where did that come from? It came from this. When he says, woe is me, oy vey. It's, it's the Hebrew, you know, um, you know, Yiddish kind of form of the same thing that Isaiah is saying. What, what Isaiah is saying here is through the ages been translated down to become oy vey. Woe is me. Oh, I can't believe this. This is amazing, you know, kind of thing. Um, and that's what, what Isaiah, is, who, who knew what he would be starting there when he said, woe is me. But he says, for I am undone. You'll see the, the margin says there that I am cut off. That means sh- cut short of being complete. I'm lacking stuff. The Lord is holy. He lacks for nothing. But Isaiah and the presence of God realize he lacks everything. And so he says, and he, and he comes to a specific one that he knows he lacks. I am a man of unclean lips. Apparently Isaiah had a problem with his speech, saying stuff he shouldn't have, um, getting into, himself into trouble. And he says, I dwell with the people of unclean lips. Brett, was he swearing like a sailor? Was he a guy who cussed all the time? I don't know if it was that. It may have been gossip or trash talking people, or maybe just the previous chapter, he was getting a little too much joy out of woeing everybody. I don't know. But he knew that he had a sin that was dirty. So what does he do? Verse 6, then flew one of the seraphims unto me. Can you imagine this? I wonder if Isaiah was petrified. The seraphim comes to Isaiah having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he said, uh, pardon me, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, lo, this has touched thy lips and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Whew, I remember reading this as a little kid thinking, ow, your lips are sensitive. Have you ever had chapped lips? It hurts when your lips are cracked, and that little tender skin on your lips, suddenly there's this live glowing coal from the fire, and the seraphim goes, do they still sear stuff on your body? I've heard like people that have bloody noses, they'll stick a hot thing up their nose and sear those vessels to keep them from, you know, having bloody noses. That sounds really unpleasant to me. Um, <laughs> but this is kind of what Isaiah is getting. But it's all, it's all a symbolic thing of his, his filthy, dirty mouth is being cauterized or being, you know, seared with hot coals so that he'd be cleansed and it wouldn't be dirty any longer. Um, you say, well, why was God doing that? That's mean. Well, I think it's preparing him for what's to come. What's to come is he's going to be used. Check this out. Verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who's the us there? Again, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. The Trinity. Then, verse 8, middle part, said I. Here's Isaiah just having his lips freshly cauterized. Then said I, here am I. Send me. Don't you love Isaiah here? Lord, I'm here. My lips have just been cleaned. Um, I'm still kind of hurting from that, but 
send me, I'll go for, and send, I'll go for you. I will, I'll be your servant. You know, I love this because Isaiah may not have been the most amazing guy in some ways, but the best ability it's been said is availability. And he says, here am I, send me. Are you available? If the Lord wanted you to do something, would you say, Lord, here am I, I'm ready to go, send me. Or, man, don't pick me, uh, pick somebody else. Glad there's other people doing stuff for the kingdom of God, because I sure am not going to do it. Glad that, you know, certain people are talking about the gospel because people need to be saved, but I'm not going to do it. Don't be that person. The best ability is availability. Um, Not passive, but active. That's Isaiah. He says, here am I, send me. So verse 9, there's kind of an interesting thing about this sending that Isaiah was going to do because he's going to go preach to the people. But is it going to be worthwhile? Verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people... Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people uh, fat, and make their ears heavy or deaf, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Uh, Brett, it seems to me like God's sending Isaiah, and he's going to make them not hear. He's going to make them not see, and he's going to make them fat and useless, and they're not going to understand, and they won't be converted, and they won't be healed. That's what God wants. Is that right? Yes. (laughs) That's Isaiah's job. He's just going to go and say, here's what's going to happen to you guys. You're condemned, and you're not going to be saved. Hmm. So, verse 11, then said I, Isaiah says, Lord, how long, how long is this going to go on for? where the people are going to be deaf and blind and not hear what you're saying. They're purposely sort of being blinded by you, Lord. And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without a man and the land be utterly desolate and the Lord hath removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. The Lord says until they're destroyed, pretty much. And that's what happened. The sad story is Isaiah preached these prophecies to the people, but they did not have ears to hear. So by and large, they were all deaf, blind, and dragged off into captivity and killed, like it says here. Sad, sad story. Well, Brett, is there any good news? Yes. At the very last verse of this chapter, verse 13, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Um, A tenth of the people would be sort of saved. In fact, by the way, a tenth of the people, Nebuchadnezzar, would leave behind in Jerusalem um, to sort of stay there. They were sort of this tiny little remnant. And then the Lord would use them to sort of be the seed to replant and restore. So God, he sees an end for most of these people saying, you're done. You're not, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm giving you over to your own sinful isms, secularism. I'm giving you over to that. And you're all going to die or be hauled off into captivity, except for a tiny little remnant. And the Lord saved that little remnant because he had a covenant with the Jews that he would never completely leave them or forsake them. And isn't it interesting that Jerusalem did set in desolation for 2,000 years? Isn't it interesting that God has regathered his people? And when we get to the prophecies of Ezekiel, he's going to talk more about the aftermath of this 
and the, the scattering of the Jews and then him bringing them back to life in his mercy. That God is not done with the Jew, but he's got a plan for them. Um, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be one of the tenth, the faithful, staying behind, holding the fort down, still walking with the Lord. And that's what we have to choose tonight. Are we going to be those that follow after the Lord, or are we going to be those who reject the Lord? Um, That's the question. And and the Jews here, they've got some tough days ahead of them because of their rebellion. I wonder if this coronavirus crisis that we're in right now is just a a reminder of what, what, what some of these coming attractions for us. Because in the same way, God has given us his word. And largely, we have rejected it, and we continue to reject it. And the Bible says there's coming a time where God's going to do the same thing with humanity. Where his wrath is poured out, the the tribulation period, where his wrath is poured out upon a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. And uh, man, you know, you and I, we don't have to be afraid of that. Some of you might be, "That, that sounds scary. Oh, it is unless you're saved, unless you're... The Bible says, comfort yourself with these words that we are not appointed unto wrath. Read First Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, and it talks about the plan God has to pull us out before the wrath comes down. So we might go through these birth pains and these times like right now, watching things happen, but ultimately we're going to be taken out. We're going to be like this remnant that's saved. We're going to be taken up to heaven to be with the Lord. So comfort each other with these words. Don't be afraid during these times because we're going to be saved. The Lord's got us and no man can pluck us out of the hand of the Father. So there you have it, Isaiah chapter 5 and chapter 6, and we'll start looking at chapter 7, Lord willing, next week. So let's pray together. And Lord, we're so thankful for your word. It's living, it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that these challenging uh, notions of what the world accepts and what we perhaps have been sucked into to believe from college professors or from the Hollywood messaging and and marketing and all the stuff that we tend to buy into. Lord, may your word cauterize our minds and our lips and our eyes, even as Isaiah had a problem with his lips that need to be cleansed. Lord, I pray that you'd cleanse us, that you'd cause us to see sin for what it is and not to be a people that just sort of uh, glance at things and, and not really think much of it. But I pray that we'd see sin for what it is, that we'd be like Jesus taught us, Lord, to be those that are blessed, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So, Lord, bless these, your people, who've taken this time tonight to study the Scriptures, and I pray that it would bring forth good fruit in our lives this evening. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.